everybody, welcome to the room room. As usual, what I'm going to do is um, answer one of my questions um, that has been sort of asked about myself and my journey to this point so far, and then hopefully that will allow a few people to um, join the chat and we'll get into the meat of the bones of the topic. We're going to talk all about rheumatology and tendons today, which is rather a complicated uh kettle of fish so we'll try and get through that um so my next question down where has your career taken you so far that has led you to being the go-to physio on twitter for rheumatology related questions another really nice um question for me there about uh, <laughs> what i've managed to achieve um and i don't know what it is really i think um a few things that i've tried to maintain over the last few years is uh, consistency I try to post um, interesting things about rheumatology as often as I can. I've obviously got my blog on my website, rheumatology.physio, providing information there. Um, and I've been on a few podcasts as well. Um, obviously been lucky enough to work with the Physio Matters podcast, which has obviously catapulted um, my uh, visibility, I suppose, out into the uh, the wider stream of things. So I've uh, been lucky enough to do various different things like that. Been lucky to go and talk at some conferences, um, and then of course running some courses all over the place. So um, I would say a lot of luck, but probably a little bit more. It's hard work uh, keeping it being consistent and um, doing various things all the time, and doing stuff like this at eight o'clock on a Tuesday evening. Um, so. Um, I think that's probably the answer to that. I always try and add an, a sensible answer. If I don't know the answer, I usually say, uh, and I will tag in somebody who might well know the answer as well. So I think people appreciate that. And um, hopefully I will continue to grow my various channels so that uh, I can get the education that I put out there um, all over the place as far as I can, really. So hopefully that answers that question. Uh, we have got a couple of questions to start us off with regards to rheumatology and tendons. Um, but what I'm going to do, just going to give a little bit of an overview about why we need to really be thinking about tendons and rheumatology. I think most people would consider rheumatology to be more of an arthritic problem and arth being joint. Um, in uh, I think that's Greek, if I remember correctly. Um, but... Um, we do need to know quite a lot about tendons and um, differential diagnosis with our tendons is very important. Um, and one of the things that we should well be aware of is that some rheumatology conditions will present purely with tendon problems. Um, something like a peripheral spondylitis, like a psoriatic arthritis would be your classic one, uh, may well present purely with a tendon problem. Uh, no arthritic uh, joint problems at all other than that. So uh, we do need to be aware of that and um, certainly it can be the first symptom of things to come as well. So uh, we'll often, if you've got someone diagnosed something like ankylosing spondylitis or something similar, then you'll find out that the first symptoms they had were pain in their feet, heel pain like plantar fasciitis or again Achilles tendon pain, something like that. Um, and I think a lot of it's missed. So um, it's very important for us as healthcare clinicians to be better at uh, our awareness of these conditions and making sure we're referring to rheumatology in a timely fashion. There are campaigns around other um, systems. So uh, there's, if you go to the NAS website, the National Axial Spondyloarthritis Society website, they have um, campaigns all around um, gut health. Um, so Crohn's, colitis, also eyes, iritis, uveitis, very important, but also psoriasis, which we'll talk about a little bit today. And those are conditions that are related to rheumatology problems. And um, 
tendon issues, I would say, go along with that as well, although they're a little bit more direct um, as part of the problem. So when we think of a tendon problem related to rheumatology, what we're getting is what we would call an enthesitic issue. So the enthesis is where the tendon or the ligament blends to the bone. So you get like a, uh, so you've got your tendon coming here or your ligament, and you get a blending into the bone like this, and that's how it holds on. And it's at that point that you get an inflammatory reaction, um, and that's the, uh, the body's system reacting against its own tissues, which is not an ideal situation, certainly nothing that we particularly want outside of an injury situation. Um, and that's what then causes symptoms. So what we would then say is these conditions are enthesitic in nature because they are causing an inf inflammation of the enthesis, um, and those would be all of our spondylitis uh, diagnoses. So as we said, axial spondyloarthritis and very commonly psoriatic arthritis um, and some of the gut-related ones as well, although it doesn't really matter the distinction between those too much. So what we then need to do is we do need to consider the whole person as it comes in. You can probably hear my cat in the background. Um, you need to consider the whole person. So one thing that I notice um, particularly uh, through referrals when I get to see referrals is people not asking about uh, people's history so the person who's coming to see the history well enough or deep enough I should say or, or um, it's possible they're not explaining to the person who's come in how important those questions are to help them get the right diagnosis so certainly with a rheumatology issue and tendons it is not sufficient just to go into the history of that tendon um, we need to go into other tendons as well. We need to know if other tendons have been an issue, uh, but also their other general health issues. So like we said, uh, can be related to the gut or the skin. So psoriasis or colitis um, very commonly will go on to then get a, um, uh, an enthesitic arthritis afterwards. So if we look at psoriasis, for example, if you have psoriasis, um, then the likelihood of you developing an arthritis related to that is approximately 25%. So one in four patients uh, with psoriasis will go on to develop an arthritis and commonly, commonly that is a tendinopathy related problem um, and similar numbers to uh, colitis as well. So about one in six over the next six years. So once you get diagnosed with colitis, uh, about one in six, so about 18% of patients will go on to develop an arthritis in the next six years. So these aren't numbers that are low. Um, you know, Psoriatic arthritis um, is relatively rare in the population, probably about 0.2% of the population have it. Uh, but it, like we just said, in the population of psoriasis, it's quite, po it's quite uh, common. Um, so we do need to be careful. So what we need to do when we have a person in front of us with a tendinopathy um, or a tendon problem, because it clinically for us as physiotherapists or GPs or uh, podiatrists etc it's extremely difficult to tell the difference between um, this enthesitic problem and a tendinopathy problem a lot of them will present exactly the same um, there is some differences on ultrasound um, and MRI uh, but outside of that a lot of them will look exactly the same so we can't really tell other than the questions that we ask the person in front of us. So we need to go deeply into their general health and um, the family history as well. So um, I would be asking questions like whether they've had any history of the colitis, the Crohn's, the psoriasis, the iritis and uveitis. Um, but I would also want to know if there's a family history of that. So our parents, siblings and children, whether they've had any history of that as well, because there is quite a high genetic component to this. 
At that point, we need to know as well whether they've had any other tendon problems. Um, so obviously within the same tendon, they currently have the problem, but other tendons as well. So the most common sites, uh, if we go from sort of most common to lower, commonality then uh, we'd start at the plantar fascia and the Achilles tendon so at the heel that would be the most common then we're looking at the glute um, so the lateral hip tendinopathy over the lateral hip um, and then we're looking into the elbows so um, the tennis elbow golfer's elbow which is lateral epicondylitis and uh, medial epicondylitis so those are the most common areas you can get it in the patella tendon can get it in any tendons the extensor tendons of the wrist and the fingers uh, but they are less likely so that's what we need to do is go into some more detail there, see if they've got a history of those. And especially if they're getting those at the same time with no clear reasoning behind that as well. So obviously a lot of tendon problems would come, let's say we've got a runner um, and they start increasing their mileage, um, they might well get a tendinopathy. Um, that's quite common. But we're looking at these people who haven't had that obvious onset and that does happen. Um, so you know sometimes that does happen but other times that doesn't happen quite so much so we need to be um, looking at why they might have got that and if there's no obvious reason then we need to go digging more deeply but I would still advocate for digging deeply anyway so um, from that point of view we need to go deep into the history um, and make sure that we're ruling all of those things out. As soon as we get someone with psoriasis um, or colitis or Crohn's, then we are going to be looking really hard at ruling out that condition. Um, so I have quite a low threshold for referral in these patients, as we just said. The numbers moving forwards are quite high, and obviously they're already in a therapy clinic, so they are in, in the number that have already got symptoms of some kind. So they're going to have an increased likelihood there as well. So we do need to be quite judicious with, with who we do send and don't send to rheumatology. But um, whilst I think if someone had psoriasis and one tendinopathy, um, that's not quite sufficient for me to send a referral to rheumatology. Um, I might give that some physio treatment first before we move any further, um, but they wouldn't need very much to tip me over the edge. So let's say they had uh, psoriasis and two tendinopathies, I would send that patient through to rheumatology. If I if they had psoriasis, um, back pain and a tendinopathy, I would send that as well. So it wouldn't take a lot for that clinical reasoning just to tip over into um, into a referral. So um, there are some other tendinopathies that we do need to cover. Um, proximal hamstring um, is another site that is a difficult one. Uh, we get a lot of misdiagnosis of proximal hamstring tendinopathy either in the affirmative, so people being told they have proximal hamstring tendinopathy when actually they've got another issue. Um, and obviously it gets quite high up into the buttock where there is quite a lot of structures around that area. And sometimes people will actually have a rheumatology problem, uh, but it's related to the sacroiliac joints. Um, so more of an axial spondyloarthropathy rather than a tendon problem. Um, so that can happen, but also in the negative. So uh, we might get people who have been told their biomechanics or the hip joint or something's um, not quite right whereas actually it is proximal hamstring tendinopathy so we do need to be careful with our differential diagnoses with regards to those sorts of things. Um, so that's a bit of a way of, uh, of differentiating out the, the tendons. Um, other things that, that people can do if you have access to ultrasound in clinic then obviously that's a real ideal way of doing it, um, really helpful um, methodology to to manage that um, and helps in lots of different ways with uh, differential diagnosis uh, blood tests can be helpful but um, in all honesty there's a lot of false positives and false negatives so uh, we do have to be really careful we're going to be much more driven by the symptoms that are presented in front of us
So hopefully that answers a few questions on differential diagnosis within the rheumatology setting. Uh, if you want a little bit more detail, then um, you should search out a, a, a PDF made by Paul Kerwan called The Screendom, which is S-C-R-E-N-D-E-M, and that takes you through the uh, extra articular features of uh, spondyloarthritis issues. Uh, it can be a really helpful thing to go back to. Um, okay, so the second question that we had uh, put through to me was about managing um, these these tendon problems, um, and that's a really difficult answer. So let's um, set the scenario where we've got a rheumatology patient who has emphysitis, so it's been diagnosed on ultrasound um, as an emphysitic problem rather than a regular uh, type of tendinopathy. Um, and what happens is this is a really difficult thing to give any guidance on because we're very very limited within the evidence base so if you look at tendinopathy research almost every uh, research trial uh, eliminates anybody with a rheumatology problem um, as part of their admission criteria and the reason for that is because we don't really know how they react so what you don't want is those patients um, changing the way your results come out when you do your trial so let's say you're doing uh, one type of strengthening exercise versus a stretching exercise, for example. Now, if the if the spondyloarthritis patients change or have a different reaction, so uh, let's make this really simple. Let's say in spondyloarthritis patients, one of those things makes something makes it worse um, rather than better. Then that's going to skew off all the results from your trial. So they all often get. Uh, get removed from any results and what that means is we'd end up with no results for people with spondyloarthritis and their tendon issues so there aren't any studies that i'm aware of that have had a look at physiotherapy specifically for these emphysitic rheumatology problems so um there is some studies ongoing again paul kerwan was um, was running one I, i'm hoping that they're into the uh into the results stage by now and they're they're doing that but um so it should be available to us soon but other than that, we have literally no guidance. So we can take some ideas from the other tendinopathy research. There's, um, we know that strengthening tends to be a far better than stretching. We know that these things take a while to settle down. Um, but on the flip side of it, we know that this process is caused by the, is caused by the inflammatory system rather than an overload problem. So you have to question whether the treatments for an overload problem would... Um, assist in the treat like they would in um, for uh, an inflammatory problem. So um, we, re we really don't know. So what I tend to do, um, and some clinical experience from me having treated a number of these patients, is I tend to give them a similar program to what I would give to a tendinopathy program, uh, so a non-inflammatory issue, um, and see how it goes. But I do follow them up quite quickly. My experience tells me that what happens is they either react very, very, very well to the program or very, very, very badly. There seems to be no middle ground. Um, so things that I would do is like a heavy loading program. So um, get them with a squat, with a, sorry, with a bar, uh, with about their body weight on it doing uh, heel raises for the Achilles tendon, for example. And like I say, some of them react very, very well. And a week later, they come back and they say they're much, much better, which almost never happens with a regular type of tendinopathy. Um, or the flip reverse happens. You do the same thing and they get absolutely terrible. They really flare up. It's really awful. They get a lot of redness, heat from the area um, and they, they are a lot worse. So um, I find that those two things happen. So I do warn them beforehand that, you know, we're going to try this. It, 
has as much chance of making it making you better as it does worse and i don't have any uh any guidance to say which of those camps you're going to fit into unfortunately but it obviously has the chance of doing really well as well and we could uh, make you significantly better so i'm i'm honest and upfront and you know i've had some patients that go okay it's not as terrible as all that um i'll just keep putting up with it have you got anything else i could do and sometimes things like ankle supports um a little heel wedge under the heel take a little bit of the pressure off um they can be helpful in the short term but i advise people that they shouldn't be using those in the long term um so that it might get them through like a, for example i remember there was i had one lady and she was uh, really struggling with her plantar fasciitis and um she had her daughter's wedding coming up so she put a heel wedge in her shoe it got her through the couple of days before the wedding a couple of days afterwards brilliant she got it rid of it um no harm no foul uh, so short-term situations like that no no bother or if they might just use it for sort of higher in higher amounts of exercise let's say they've got to do a lot of walking or whatever it might be a short-term fix for that um uh, and the ankle supports much the same thing. I just describe them like giving the ankle a bit of a hug. Uh, it doesn't really do anything, but it makes it feel a little bit better and a little bit stronger um, and can get you through some different things. So uh, sometimes I'll have a talk with people about that. But otherwise, um, I would advocate for a heavy loading program, see how they do. Um, if they get no change whatsoever, uh, which occasionally happens, that we do need to pro- progress through it like a tendon problem, like a tendinopathy problem. It's going to take three to six months at least uh, to really make some significant progress, especially if there's any chronicity to it. Um, so it's one of those things you do really have to stick at, unfortunately. There's no real role for anything else. Nothing like that. We know steroid injections are no good for tendons. You don't really want one of those if you can absolutely help it. Um, the in the end if someone's got really bad enthesitis related to their rheumatology issue um, then it unfortunately is back to the rheumatologist for a review of their medications see whether they're on an optimized dose of whatever it is they're taking um, or whether they're indeed actually taking anything for uh, full-blown enthesitis um, there are some medications which have been shown to help um, th- Again, they're not amazing for the enthesitis, um, for spondyloarthritis, the DMARDs, the disease-modifying anti-rheumatic drugs, um, they they are, can be okay. Things like methotrexate, there can be some help, but it doesn't seem to be um, really, really good. It tends to be those people with the axial disease who end up on an anti-TNF, um, which is a... Um, immunomodulator uh, TNF um, it upregulates the uh, it, it upregulates the immune system so you take something that prevents that from working so efficiently and your immune your uh, inflammatory reactions go down um, those have been shown to have some decent uh, response to peripheral symptoms um, so it is unfortunately it's a really difficult condition to manage uh, these these enthesitic tendinopathies and I think um, especially if you've got someone in clinic with a really stubborn one that's not getting better at all, then it is something to consider whether you've been deeply enough into the history um, as to why they're not getting better. So something else I would probably advocate. Um, Anything else there's not really any role for. I mean, um, we know that shockwave has some potential within um, some tendon problems. But again, we're looking at it. It's 
sort of most plausible um, mechanism of effect is something like a pro-inflammatory response um, to try and get the tendon to change and adapt. But we know with an enthesitic problem, there's too much inflammation. So I can't really see that having a really, really good outcome, although it might help a little bit um, depending on what part of the pathway the infla it's acting within the inflammatory system um but again I, not something that i've managed to find the answer to the other uh, thing that shockwave is is thought to do is um, reduce the sensitivity of the nervous system around that area so again that might give you a little bit of pain relief um, in the short term to allow you to do a rehab program but again it doesn't seem to me to be the be all and end all with regards to treating this kind of problem um i haven't seen any research specifically into it so um, that would be shooting blind as well i think um, but equally it might be something that's worth giving a go if um if all else is failing probably it's definitely going to be better than a steroid injection in the long term um to the side of because of a, a lack of side effects other than it's painful at the time and um can be quite expensive but other than those there's no real side effects to it unlike a steroid injection which can have some bigger issues so it's one of those things you've got to take every individual on their what their journey's been, what they've tried, what they haven't tried, and see what's going to happen. Really, uh, plus access, it's difficult to access sometimes. Um, so that's how, that's how I go about managing it. No real golden answers, unfortunately, other than uh, suck it and see, see how you get on, um, and um, and go from there. Really. So I was hoping that we might get a couple more questions in the chat bar, um, but I don't know if either there are, there aren't any coming in or. Um, my chat function's not working, um, so I haven't got any questions here to specifically answer. I'm going to go, we've still got a few minutes left, um, see if anything does come in, um, see if there are any answers. I'm just going to have a look on social media as well, see if anybody's asked me any questions here. Doesn't look like it. Cool. In which case, what I'll do is, uh, so we have got a couple of good things coming up. There won't be a room room next week because uh, I'm doing one specifically for students and new graduates. Um, so you'll have to have a week off, I'm afraid. Um, but when we come back in two weeks time, I will be going again with any questions that have come in. Oh, we have got a question from Catherine. I'll finish my thought. Um, so we will be going again in two weeks, same time, same place, 8 p.m. Um, and go from there. I have got uh, some various other, other things coming up. I'm, I am talking at Therapy Live. That will be free. Um, what I'm going to do, I'm going to challenge myself um, to go through a clinical reasoning situation with regards to some of the rheumatology problem of the upper limb so uh, that'll be interesting because i'll probably start floundering at some point so uh, that'll be worth tuning in for for that tickets are free just head to therapy-live.co.uk um, there's plenty of other streams on at the same time while i'm on so uh, you can choose to go and watch someone else that might be far more interesting um, and I have got an online course, which I'm hoping you have to have out by the same time. Um, so keep an eye on all my social media for that as well. Um, so Catherine is, says, is adductor tendinopathy common in this population? I wouldn't say common, Catherine. It, you can get it, um, but it's not in my top list of locations where it, where it starts to happen mostly. So uh, we're mostly looking at the heel, so the plantar fascia insertion, the Achilles tendon insertion, the lateral hip. Um, and the uh, the elbow, those are the most common. Then it does happen in any of the other tendons, but um, much more rarely. So you probably find a couple of people do have it, but it's, it's pretty rare to get it um, at that location. 
Um, I did see someone who did have it, but they ha- it was more related to it. They had osteitis pubis, um, and I think it was co cohabiting it's not the right word is it but um i think it was to do with that as much as it was anything else um but certainly not a lot alex uh, says how do you manage someone who has tried a loaning plan but has a has had a poor response um the same <laughs> unfortunately the same way i would manage any tendon um program i mean i think what you have to do with tendons if someone's getting a poor response i i will um I discuss it through with the patient. So there's a few ways you can go. You can spend some time adapting the loading program. So um, it might be that someone needs a bit of a slower, longer approach uh, to the way you're building up, um, even going back down to isometrics, then building back up again. Um, it might be that there is a different problem that's causing the issue. So um, I certainly think that imaging um after a loading plan of at least three months um, is worth it. So either ultrasound or MRI, um, it's worth seeing whether one, your diagnosis is correct, or two, whether there's some sort of structural issue that's meaning they're not responding um, to the loading program. My third option then is to consider something like shockwave. Um, Like I said, the jury for me is still out. Um, I have known people that could get a good response. There seems to be a lot of good things being talked about on social media about it and my concern is the cart is a bit before the horse with regards to research we don't really know how it works ideally um so it is something i consider but it's not something that i would you know jump into um and it certainly it unfortunately matters what your patient population is because some people just simply won't be able to afford it um it can be very expensive um, you can eventually go and have things like steroid injections if it's really, really, really troublesome, really, really resistant to loading. But more and more, you'll struggle to find someone to do that um, because of the effect that the steroid has on the tendon. Um, and then eventually some people do end up with something like a surgical uh, um, option. Uh, there are various different different options where they uh, strip the tendon and various things like that at the, at really at the end of the lo- at the end of the road so i really try to encourage people to stick out those loading programs for a really long period of time um if we think about a rheumatology problem specifically then i basically treat them exactly the same because i haven't got the evidence to say any differently the only difference would be uh once we get to the end of a good period of time on a loading program uh is to consider whether they still have an ongoing inflammatory issue that's changing the response so maybe back to the rheumatologist uh, probably for imaging again see if it's actively inflamed but see if they can have their medications optimized hopefully that makes sense that was a very long-winded answer to you alex hopefully <laughs> hopefully that all made it made, made sense uh, but essentially i don't treat them any differently do i treat regular tendons except for uh, i do give them a bit of a warning that it's it can flare up um so Catherine says, thanks, no worries, Catherine. Um, I don't know the numbers to the adductor tendinopathy. It's something I'll have to look up. I've never seen it mentioned um, in any research, so um, I don't hold out any hope. Um, Excellent. So any further questions that we've got coming in? Chris says, thanks for that. Do you advocate for physio training in diagnostic ultrasound? (sighs) There's a a question, Chris. Um, I think you've got to follow what you enjoy to be honest there's as an absolute there is a utility to diagnostic ultrasound in clinic 
um, for certain situations. I think a lot of what we find nowadays is the same with all imaging. You can find a lot of things on imaging that doesn't re- they're not really relevant. So you're probably going to spend a lot of time educating your patient what, what's, what matters rather than what doesn't, what, what's shown as well. Um, so I think, you, you know, we've all got a finite amount of time. We've all got a finite amount of finances. Well, most of us do anyway. Um, I nearly trained in ultrasound, um, but and it all ended up f- falling through. I think I would train in ultrasound before I trained in trained in uh, joint injections. Let's put it that way. Um, so, I think if you're interested in imaging, um, if you've got a role where it's going to lend itself to be used quite a lot, uh, something like a first contact practitioner role, or if you're in a cat's clinic. Uh, or an MCATS clinic, whatever we call them, musculoskeletal assessment clinic, I think then they can be have, have a good role. Um, so I wouldn't go jumping into it if you're not into one of those roles. Uh, you've probably got to be careful in private practice what your overheads are and then what you're using it for, I think, because um, that, be, that would be an interesting trade-off. But uh, I think it's certainly something that is, it has a lot of utility and is very interesting. Um, there's some great courses out there get, um, aimed specifically at physiotherapists. We've obviously already got um, really good anatomy knowledge, and that'll take it up to a whole other gear and give you some really good options for uh, further CPD as well. Um, so definitely something something to consider. Um, okay, so I'm just going to give it 30 more seconds. We've gone to the 30 minutes. So if we've got one more question come in, uh, then we'll go for it. Otherwise, um, I will be back in two weeks' time. What questions are we on to next? Um, I think that we... Uh, I think we'll talk about psoriatic arthritis in two weeks' time, potentially. Um, and we'll see see what questions come in specifically about psoriatic arthritis. Um, and then we'll go from there. Difficult condition to understand and diagnose. Um, and a long delay to diagnosis. So I think we'll talk about psoriatic arthritis unless something else piques my interest significantly uh, to change the idea. But um, no rose, Chris. Sound advice, Chris says. Um, uh but please do send me any questions that you want to either tag them on the uh, pop them on the on the room room uh, video or you can email me physiojack at hotmail.co.uk find me on um, social media there on the uh, on the uh, screen just up here twitter and instagram um, do see if you can come to uh, therapy live on the 26th of june it's going to be amazing regardless of whether you come to my talk or not um and um yeah that's that's all for me today so thank you for spending your evening with me and if anybody's tuning in after the fact thank you for t- tuning in and watching the video um and do remember to subscribe to the channel uh, and tell all your friends that um i talk some sense if that's all right um, and i'll see you in two weeks time bye everybody for now <laughs>